There should be an outline in your uh, bulletin, and there are printed messages at both exits, and you can grab one now or later, and those are also on the church website. Jesus is speaking to the disciples on the night before he would go to the cross. And he says in verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Every Christian desires to know Christ more intimately. If you don't have that desire, you better go back and check. Do you really know Christ? Because if you know him, you want to know him more. The Apostle Paul said he counted everything else in his life as rubbish so that he could know Christ. And he wrote that in Philippians chapter 3, about 25 years into his Christian life. And if none other than the Apostle Paul, 25 years into it, said, Oh, that I may know him, then certainly that should be the longing and cry of our hearts as well. We all need to work at growing closer to Christ. And that's the topic that our Lord covers in our text on this night uh, before he died. The overall theme, as we saw in our last study, is abiding in him, or we could call it dwelling in him, or making him at home in our hearts and lives. And the idea is to grow closer to Jesus Christ as we walk and live daily in fellowship with him. And as we saw in verses 1 through 5, Jesus uses the analogy of the vine and the branches to illustrate that union we have with him, the life we draw from him, and the point that we should bear much fruit for him as his followers, we abide in him. Now he's going to flesh out five aspects of how we can grow closer to him. And he shows us that to grow closer to him, first of all, abide in him, abide in his word and in prayer. Secondly, live uh, to glorify the Father by bearing fruit. Thirdly, abide in his love. Fourthly, obey his commandments. And then finally, stay focused on his joy. First of all, to grow closer to Christ, Jesus says we need to abide in him and in his word and in prayer. In verse 7, let me read that verse again. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, we saw a similar promise back in chapter 14, if you'll recall, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus said, Whatever you ask in, in my name, 
That will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And we saw that to ask in Jesus' name means to ask on the basis of who he is and what he has done for us on the cross. Uh, It assumes that we are seeking to do his will, that we are seeking to promote his kingdom purposes. Now, in verse 7, the the request there or the um, statement is similar, but it's slightly different in that the condition Jesus lays down is that we would abide in him. And his words must abide in us. And so the nuance is slightly different. Uh, There are three things here. First of all, to grow closer to Christ, he's saying, abide in him. And in our last study, just to refresh your memory, I cited a description of abiding in Christ from uh, the New Schofield Reference Bible. It says this, to abide in Christ is on the one hand, to have no known sin unjudged and unconfessed, no interest into which he is not brought, no life which he cannot share. On the other hand, the abiding one takes all burdens to him and draws all wisdom, life, and strength from him. It is not unceasing consciousness of these things and of him, but that nothing is allowed in the life which separates from him. So you don't allow anything into your life that's going to cause a rift, a division between you and the Lord Jesus. Uh, I have a book by a Dr. James Roscup, who um, may be still teaching sometimes, but he's in retirement age at uh, the Master's Seminary in California. But he wrote an entire book on abiding in Christ out of John 15. And uh, he notes in that book that the concept of abiding has two aspects to it. One is time, and the other is quality. The uh, time factor means abiding in Christ is not a quick fix. It's not something you pull off the shelf when you're in a jam, you plug it into your life, and you use it, and it gets you out of the problem, and you put it back again. It's not that sort of thing. But rather, it is a lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ where you're in it for the long haul. The quality aspect of it means that it should grow more intimate. It should grow closer over the years. Um, it's, you could compare it to a marriage. A marriage should be a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. But it isn't static. It should be growing over the years. And by the time you've been married for a few years, you should know one another more deeply Love one another on a deeper level than you did when you began. Now, all of us who have been married for a long while know that it doesn't run on autopilot. You have to work at that relationship for it to grow. And the same thing in your relationship with Christ. If you don't work at it, you tend to drift. And so you've got to spend time together. This is true of both marriage and our relationship with Christ. You spend deliberate time together. When issues come up, you work through those issues. Uh, You communicate with one another. And so the key is keep coming back to Jesus Christ over and over, day in, day out. He is the center of all that you are, of all that you do. 
And you can't put that on autopilot. You have to work at your relationship with Christ. So to grow closer to him, the first thing is abide in him, dwell in him, uh, have him be at home in your heart, and you're at home, all of your life is open to Christ. It's that kind of thing. The second aspect, Jesus says, to grow closer to him is that his words must abide in you. And when Jesus says, my words, he's referring to everything that he taught. Now, as he pointed out on the Emmaus Road and then with the disciples there after his resurrection, all of the Old Testament was written to point forward to Jesus Christ. And as we know, all of the New Testament focuses on Jesus Christ. And so we could say that when he says, abide, or my words should abide in you, it means that we need to be at home with the Bible. The Bible should be as familiar as home to us, where we know our way around it, we know where things are at in it, uh, we are growing in familiarity with it, and all of our life is exposed to it. Because the Bible is the primary means by which we know who Jesus is, what Jesus did. There's a lot of talk today about dreams and visions. And I'm not denying that God uh, can give those. But here's the deal. If a dream or vision contradicts what the Bible says, it was not from God. Because the Bible is our supreme revelation of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. And so if you want to grow closer to Christ, he is saying, spend much time in my word. Be at home with it. Let it be at home with you. Where uh, I think it was uh, Spurgeon who said of John Bunyan, if you prick that man at any, any place, his blood is bibbling. <laughs> he meant... Everything that Bunyan wrote and said and did was related to Scripture. And uh, if you read Pilgrim's Progress, you'll find that out. But that's how all of us should be. The third thing, to grow closer to Christ, Jesus says, ask and receive from him in prayer. If we abide in him, and if his words abide in us, then Jesus says, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. Now, The context here is important. The context is bearing fruit for his kingdom. And so he's not talking about, oh, good, I wish for a million dollars. I wish for a trouble-free, happy life, never to be sick, and so on. Uh, That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about our kingdom desires. We want to see his kingdom promoted. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do this, and we ask that you would do that, and so on, that kind of thing. Uh, He's talking about praying in line with his kingdom. Now, as I pointed out when I spoke on those similar verses in John 14, uh, those blanket promises of Jesus, and we we see it here in verse 7. We'll see it down in verse 16 next time. Uh, It's in chapter 16 as well. It's also in Mark 11 where Jesus just seems to say, you ask and It's a slam dunk. I'll do it. Uh, Those are difficult verses to understand and apply practically. And it kind of frustrates me that I could not find commentators or pastors preaching on that who admit that. Um, 
it's not an easy thing to understand because if you're like me, and I have a hunch you are, you see a lot of unanswered prayers. And I'm not talking about selfish prayers. I'm talking about prayers for his kingdom. I've prayed for people to come to salvation, and they died without coming to salvation. I've prayed for many, many Christian marriages that they would be healed, and they ended in divorce. I have prayed for sinning Christians that they would be restored through repentance and come back to the Lord, and uh, in many cases they have not. So you've got to wrestle with that and say, how, how does that line up with this promise? And in that message, I offered four suggestions that might help you and me work through all of this, and I'm going to repeat them just in nutshell form here to remind you of them. First of all, I pointed out that the tension that we experience stems from the fact that we can know the what we might call God's will of desire, what God says he desires, but we cannot know his will of decree. And so there is a mystery there that we don't understand. For example, the Bible is very clear that God desires the sanctification, the the growth in holiness of all believers. And yet we know God permits sin. And so we all know believers who have fallen into sin. Um, an interesting case is in Peter. Remember when in, uh, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he said to Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And I would have said, be gone, Satan, you can't do that. But Jesus didn't pray that way. He didn't pray that Peter would not fall, but he prayed. He says, I have prayed for you, Peter, that when you're restored, you will strengthen your brothers. And that prayer has been answered multiple times over down through history. So the guideline there is pray for what you know is God's will. He desires the salvation of all people. And yet we know he hasn't willed the salvation of all people, but pray and then be willing to submit to the fact sometimes we just don't know how God is at work. A second guideline, uh, Jesus' promise to do whatever we ask does not negate the many scriptures that talk about waiting on the Lord. In other words, he doesn't say when he will do what we ask. And there's much in the Bible about waiting on the Lord. And um, Paul, in Romans 10, said his heart's desire and prayer was for the conversion of the Jews. And Paul went to his grave without that prayer being answered. And in fact, here almost 2,000 years later, it hasn't been answered yet on a wide-scale basis. I believe it will be. Romans chapter 11 indicates at the end times uh, the Jews will turn in mass to Christ but it hasn't happened, so wait on the Lord. A third guideline, God often accomplishes his purposes in ways that seem backwards to us. For example, we pray, Lord, spread the gospel, and he says, okay, and he brings persecution to the church, and it's through persecution that the gospel spreads. Or, you know, like Paul, we say, Lord, give me strength, and he says, okay, I'll make you weak. And it's when we are weak that we are strong as we trust in the Lord. So God has a way of working that's just not our way of thinking. And then finally, 
we don't understand all that God is doing. And so, like Paul, we may go to our graves uh, not knowing why he seemingly didn't answer our prayers. God is far, far, far bigger than we can comprehend in his ways of working. And we only see a little tiny fraction of what God is doing. And so that causes us confusion. The amazing thing is somehow God uses our prayers, even our inept prayers, and the Spirit translates them, Romans 8.26 says, into things that God understands so that our prayers get through even when we don't know how to pray as we should. Now, Jesus' point here in verse 7 is, we should live so closely with him and his word should so govern our lives that regularly we are seeing answers to our prayers. We're asking and God is granting. Uh, One of the most helpful treatments I've seen on prayer is about 75 pages in the Institutes by John Calvin. And uh, I think you can get that separately so you don't have to wade through the whole 1,600 pages of the Institutes. But it pays off. It's worth its weight in gold to read it. And I just wanted to leave you with one rich quote, and you can chew on this for a long, long time. Calvin says this, But after we have been instructed by faith to recognize that whatever we need and whatever we lack is in God and in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the Father willed all the fullness of his bounty to abide, and then there's several references, so that we may draw so that we may all draw from it as from an overflowing spring, it remains for us to seek in him and in prayers to ask of him what we have learned to be in him. So he's saying Christ is all, and when you learn that, then you can go to him and draw from him as from a a spring that never runs dry for all your needs. So to grow closer to Christ, then the first thing, that, that Jesus is saying is abide in him, abide in his word, and abide in prayer. Secondly, and this is the next verse, verse 8, to grow closer to Christ, Jesus says, live to glorify the Father by bearing much fruit. My Father is glorified by this, he says, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, I pointed out in our last study that The reason God saved you is to bear fruit that would glorify him. That's why he saves us. Uh, The analogy was a vineyard, and Jesus makes the point, you don't plant a vineyard to go out and admire the pretty leaves. You plant a vineyard to get fruit. And that's why God saved each one of us. Now, he has gifted us all differently. And we're to use those gifts according to how he has gifted us for his kingdom. But the point is, we should bear fruit. Now, I'm not much of a gardener or botanist or anything. But, you know, I have learned how to identify certain trees. We were driving down in Phoenix not too long ago. And I drove by a tree that had these round orange things on it. And I said to Marla, there's an orange tree. I knew that. And at other times, I've had this uncanny ability to look at a tree with these round red things on it and said, there's an apple tree. And you're going, yeah, well, duh. You know, anybody can identify a tree by its fruit, right? Yeah, I think Jesus said something like that, didn't he? 
you'll know the tree by its fruit. Now, that's kind of convicting because what it means is people should be able to look at you and me and say, there's a Christian. That person follows Jesus. I can tell by the fruit in their lives. Now, we need to know then, well, what is fruit? And generally, fruit is Christ-likeness that is produced in us as we rely on the Holy Spirit. Christ-likeness. I mean, an orange tree bears oranges, not thistles. So a Christian tree should look like Christ, right? That's what it should bear. And at the root of this, what I'm getting at is Bearing fruit doesn't just mean going to church and serving in the church and doing Christian activities. At the root of those activities should be the life of Christ flowing through the believer. And it's possible to take oranges and tape them on a pine tree, but that isn't the real deal. And they're not going to last and it's not going to produce more oranges to produce good, sweet oranges every year, there has to be the life, the sap, flowing from the root up through the branches and produce the fruit. And what I'm saying is this. If you haven't been born of the Spirit of God, you cannot bear fruit that glorifies God. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who think, well, I'm a Christian because I do Christian things. No, not unless that stems from the new birth that you've come to Christ as a sinner, that you've cried out to him for forgiveness and said, oh Lord, give me life. And Christ through the spirit has caused you to be born again to a living hope. Then that life of Christ in you produces fruit that glorifies God. Now I hope you all know the little ditty from the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And Jesus says here, we glorify God when we bear much fruit. So as others see the changes in our life, they see Christ-likeness in us. They go, wow, you know, that there's something there. And, and through us, even though we're kind of imperfect people, through us, they get a glimpse of what God is like. And it means that the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control should be evident in our closest relationships in our home, radiating out from that to the world that they might see Jesus. Now, two things here to bear fruit that you have to keep in mind. The first one is uh, check your motive. Check your motive. Why do you want to bear fruit? And it's really easy, and I've seen it happen many, many times in the church, of falling into the trap of serving the Lord because people want affirmation from others. They want others to say, wow, what a, what a great servant they are. What, what a wonderful work they're doing. And if you fall into that, you know, and pastors can do it, you know, I want to build an impressive ministry so people will say, my, what a man of God he is. Wrong motive. Totally wrong motive. See, then you're serving for self-glory, not for God's glory. 
And so you got to keep your motive pure. Secondly, check your source of power. Your source of power. It has to be the Holy Spirit working in and through you, not your own strength. Now, that doesn't mean that you're passive. You work hard, but you work hard in dependence on the Spirit. Uh, in Colossians 1.29, Paul put it this way, For this purpose I also labor, that's a, a work word, striving, there's energy, effort, but he doesn't do it in his power, striving according to his power, Christ's power, which mightily works within me. You know, we read a lot today about burnout, and I realize there are other causes of it, sometimes just working too much. But one of the causes of burnout is you're not doing it in the Lord's power. You're just trying to crank it out in your own strength. Now, there's a benefit that Jesus mentions here when you glorify God by bearing fruit. It's at the end of verse 8. He says that you so prove to be my disciples. J.C. Ryle applies it this way. He says, fruitfulness in Christian practice will not only bring glory to God, but will supply the best evidence to our own hearts that we are real disciples of Christ. And maybe you've seen this happen where you've done something for the Lord and you've worked hard. Maybe you're kind of discouraged, but um, you realize, you know what? The results that came out of that were not proportionate to my strength, to my ability, to my effort, anything. God did it. God did it through me. And if God hadn't done it, it wouldn't have happened. And it just floods you with a sense of joy of thank you, Lord, that you could use an earthen vessel like me to glorify your name. And it gives you assurance that you're a true disciple of Christ. So to abide in Christ, first of all, I mean to grow closer to Christ, abide in him and in his word and in prayer. Um, and then secondly, live to glorify the Father by bearing much fruit. The third thing Jesus says is to grow closer to him, abide in his love, in verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Did you hear what that said? That's a staggering claim. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. That should just jar us to the core. How did the Father love the Son? Infinitely, eternally, before the world was made, the Father and the Son were in this intimate love relationship where nothing hindered it. They were in perfect fellowship and harmony throughout history. And Jesus is saying, with that same infinite, inexhaustible love, I love you. We sing, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Or Paul put it this way, and I, I just can't help but think that when Paul wrote this, there was tears trickling down his cheeks. Galatians 2.20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God. And then here's where I think the tears came. Who loved me, very personal, 
who loved me, the chief of sinners, the one who persecuted the church, and he gave himself up for me. I believe that that is what we have to keep before us. And if you want to have a genuine, fresh, fruitful relationship with Christ, you've got to stay focused on his love. It's just essential. Because if you don't, when he commands something, it's going to seem burdensome. And serving him is going to become a drag, you know, drudgery. Oh, man, I guess I better go do it. Yeah. You know, it won't be joy. And you'll become vulnerable to all sorts of temptations. Because the world will look more pleasurable to you than Christ if his love is not central and focused in your life. Remember the the rebuke the Lord gave to the church at Ephesus? The church at Ephesus was a good church in many ways. They were serving the Lord. They were persevering under persecution. They were not tolerating false doctrine in their midst, so they were on target doctrinally. But the Lord spoke to them there in Revelation 2-4 and said, But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Now, he's probably referring to their love for him, but our love for Christ always stems from his love for us. If we aren't loving Christ, it's because we're not looking at his love for us. We love because he first loved us. And so Jesus is saying that we should never get over the wonder that the sinless Son of God laid aside his glory, took on human flesh, went to the cross, and died in your place and in my place there. The Apostle Paul earlier had prayed for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians three seventeen to 19. He said that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's the abiding in Christ theme, right? And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. But before I leave that, we need to think about it a little more carefully because I have met many believers who are going through a difficult trial, and you know what? They begin to doubt the love of Christ. Oh, how can God love me because this is happening, and I went through this, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know? We've all probably been there. But think it through. How did the Father love the Son? Perfectly. So did he spare the Son from all suffering? Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. He loved the Son perfectly, and so he sent the Son to bear our sin on the cross through that horrible death on the cross. And so does God's perfect love for you mean he's going to spare you from all suffering and trials? Uh Uh-uh. You know why? It's through the trials that we come to know God more deeply. Because you never trust God like you trust God when you're in a trial, do you? I mean, you know, you trust God every day, I hope. But it's when the bottom drops out that you're on your knees saying, oh, God, help. God, I'm, I'm weak. Without you, I'm going to perish. That's when you trust God and you come to know 
the all-sufficiency of Christ better through that time. Paul calls it in Philippians 3, the fellowship of his sufferings. That's when we come to know him. And so as someone has said, never interpret God's love by your circumstances, but rather interpret your circumstances by God's love. The fourth thing is to grow closer to Christ. He says, obey his commandments. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And by that verse, Jesus is letting us know, I'm not talking about a warm, fuzzy feeling. You know, when life is going well and you're just going, oh, I love Jesus so much. And that, that's fine, but that's not the core of it. At the core of Jesus' love to abide in it, he says very simply, you must keep his commandments. And the flip side is true. If you, that you're not abiding in his love, no matter what your feelings tell you, if you're being disobedient to Christ. That's the test of, am I in his love? Well, am I obedient? And to the degree I'm not, no, I'm not in his love. Now, it's relatively easy to obey the Lord when life is going well. You know, the test of obedience is when he takes you through difficult times. And at such times, you may not understand exactly what's going on or why it's going on. I think of Abraham. God said, Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and go sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And as far as the biblical record goes, Abraham didn't even raise a question. He took his son, and he made that three-day journey. What was he thinking? What was he thinking? But he did it in obedience. Elizabeth Elliot, and I understand right now she's suffering from dementia, but... uh, She's a godly woman. Anything you see written by Elizabeth Elliot, buy it, read it. She is gold. She lost her first husband, Jim Elliot, when the Alka Indians speared him and four other young missionaries. She wrote about that in uh, Shadow of the Almighty and uh, Through Gates of Splendor. She lost her second husband, Addison Leach, who was a theologian, to cancer. And back in 1976, she spoke to the Urbana Missions Conference. And she told of a time when she was in Wales. And she was watching a shepherd and his sheepdog. And the dog would herd the sheep up a ramp. And at the end of the ramp was a tank of antiseptic. And the sheep would plunge in there and flail about and try to get out. The dog would snap and snarl in their faces. And just about at the time they were ready to climb out, the shepherd had a wooden implement he would take and grab the rams by their horns and plunge them under that antiseptic and hold them under for a second or two so it could take effect and kill the parasites and whatever and then they would struggle out and Mrs. Elliot asked the shepherd's wife if the sheep understood what was happening and she shook her head and said they haven't got a clue and then Mrs. Elliot said I've had some experiences in my life that made me feel very sympathetic to those poor rams. She said, I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting 
from the shepherd I trusted, and he didn't give a hint of explanation. But it's those times that obedience is tested, isn't it? Do you trust him? Do you obey him when you're suffering? And that's when you come to know the Savior who suffered because he obeyed the Father's will in going to the cross for us. So first of all, to grow closer to Christ, then abide in him, in his word, and in prayer. Secondly, live to glorify him by bearing much fruit. Thirdly, abide in his love. Fourthly, obey his commandments. And then finally, to grow closer to Christ, stay focused on his joy. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, if we were to do a word association and I said, uh, tell me the first thing that pops into your mind when I say this word, obedience. You might say duty, or uh, some of you might think, you may not say it, drudgery, or maybe you'd say rules. Uh, How about joy? How about joy? See, verse 11 follows on verse 10, doesn't it? It always does. Verse 10 is all about obedience. Verse 11 is all about joy. In fact, I think Elizabeth Elliot has a little book out called The Joy of Obedience. But if you don't think about joy when you think about obedience, you need to reprogram your thinking. Because Jesus says, there is great joy when you obey my commandments. It's interesting, in John's gospel, the word joy has been used once up till the upper room. That was way back in chapter 3 when John the Baptist was saying, I am the bridegroom's attendant and I have much joy to see the bridegroom, Jesus. But now, Jesus uses it seven times in John 15 and 16 and 17 as he's facing the cross. See, the world can only offer joy when things are going well. I mean, it's easy to be full of joy if you have a happy marriage and a good job and, you know, uh, nice kids and good health and all that stuff. But it's only those who know Christ who can say things like Paul says in Romans 5.3, we exult in our tribulations. Hello, you exult in your tribulations? Or James, I preached on this last week at the conference, James 1.3, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various or encounter various trials. Or 1 Peter 4.13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, Keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Now, don't misunderstand. They're not talking about putting on a happy face when you're dying inside. The Bible is very clear that it's fine to weep. It's fine to grieve. There are those times, Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, all discipline for the moment doesn't seem joyful, but sorrowful. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of, of uh, righteousness. But through the, the tears, through the grieving, there's that strong undercurrent of joy in the Lord. I have Christ. I am his. He is mine. I will be with him forever. 
And so that sustains us. I love John Newton, the slave trader who got saved and became a pastor, who wrote most familiar is Amazing Grace. But in Glorious Things of the Ear Spoken, he said this, Fading is the world's best pleasure. All its boasted pomp and show. And then I love this line, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. So this morning, I want you to think about your relationship to Christ. How you doing? If you don't have one, you start there. You come to the cross and you bow before him and acknowledge your sin and the fact that you can't save yourself and you cry out to Jesus to save you. And at that moment, you begin a personal relationship, a lifelong relationship with the living Savior, Jesus Christ. But it's possible, because it happened to the church of Laodicea, that your love for Christ has grown kind of cold or lukewarm. And if that's so, Jesus says the thing you need to do is repent. And I would encourage you, if, if that's describing you, turn. That's what repentance means. And this week, establish as a priority some regular time in God's word and prayer. And say, Lord, I want my life to glorify you by bearing fruit, by becoming like Jesus. And Lord, I just want to dwell in your love. I want to focus on that every day. And if there are commandments of his that you're disobeying, begin to say, Lord, I want to, by your spirit, to obey your commandments. And mostly then, stay focused on his joy, because it's all about joy. Lord, give me the joy of my salvation, that my life would glorify my Savior. And that's Christ's prescription for how to grow closer to him. Father, you know, every heart here, I don't. Thank you that you were at work in every heart just by the fact that they are here. And so I pray that you would take us all to the next step, that we would all grow stronger in you and in your grace, that we would all abide in you, in your word, in prayer, in obedience, that you would fill us with your joy and peace as we believe and that you would be glorified through this church to the praise of the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to run over just a moment, but we are going to conclude by partaking of the Lord's Supper together. And 